morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I am your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Thank you to our generous underwriters on Sharper Iron, the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information and Luther Classical College, a college for Lutherans by Lutherans, opening in fall 2025. Learn more at lutherclassical.org. On this Thursday, September 8th, we're studying Deuteronomy 21, verses 1 to 17. Moses teaches Israel God's word concerning how to make atonement for unsolved murders, the treatment of women who have been taken captive, and inheritance rights of the firstborn. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us Pastor Garen Pei. Pastor Pei serves at Hope Lutheran Church in Idaho Falls, Idaho. Pastor Pei, welcome to Sharper Iron. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. As we get started this morning, Pastor, give us a little context. What should we know about Deuteronomy and the chapters leading up to Deuteronomy chapter 21 that we're looking at today? Deuteronomy, one of the final books of Moses. Uh, They are on the plains of Moab, not yet in the promised land. We know, of course, Moses is not allowed to go into the promised land because of his transgression. We might think, oh, that's kind of harsh, God. Uh, But we, of course, know that that temporal punishment doesn't carry over to an eternal punishment as we see Moses again on the Mount of Transfiguration. So we know he's able to enter into the greater promised land of heaven and the new creation. Uh, But we're not there yet. We are in the plains of Moab in Deuteronomy, the second law is what it means. Moses is expounding once again on God's good law for his people as they are about to enter into the promised land. Mm. With the section that we've got today, these three there's three main parts, I think. Do you see any anything running through all three, or is this one of those parts of Deuteronomy where Moses knows he needs to give a lot of instructions before they go into the promised land, and so this is just how it happened to land, or is there some kind of a thread that ties these three things together, do you think? You know, I was reading a Luther commentary on this, actually, and he mentioned that uh, this is the end of his section on dealing with kind of the violent stuff. So we have murder, we have war, though he does kind of shift gears there at the end with the rights of the firstborn. Uh, So Luther kind of saw that little thread in there. Um, Of course, the thread throughout all of the Old Testament and the whole scriptures is going to be Jesus. I think there are some uh, really interesting things that point forward to Christ here. That, of course, is going to be a great thread. Um, But especially with that rights of the firstborn, that one seems, oh, maybe that comes a little out of left field for most of us who are just reading along, maybe. Sure. I mean, you know, the previous chapter dealt a lot with warfare. We spent plenty of time talking about that. And today we do have some, as you said, violence, but then the matter of the firstborn at the end. I'm not sure exactly if that follows necessarily, but that that's okay. Moses is giving a variety of instructions for the people yep. in the promised land. And, and we could also say, I mean, I suppose, you know, if you think back to this being a long sermon here in the middle of Deuteronomy that Moses began with the Decalogue, the 10 words. Mm -hmm. Each one of these, in in one way or another, is going to touch on one of those 10 words or 10 commandments. Yep. 
So let's go ahead and take a look. We're in Deuteronomy chapter 21, verses 1 to 17 this morning. This is Moses speaking. If in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess, someone is found slain, lying in the open country, and it is not known who killed him, then your elders and your judges shall come out, and they shall measure the distance to the surrounding cities. And the elders of the city that is nearest to the slain man shall take a heifer that has never been worked and that has not pulled in a yoke. And the elders of that city shall bring the heifer down to a valley with running water, which is neither plowed nor sown, and shall break the heifer's neck there in the valley. Then the priests, the sons of Levi, shall come forward. For the Lord your God has chosen them to minister to him and to bless in the name of the Lord. And by their word, every dispute and every assault shall be settled. And all the elders of that city nearest to the slain man shall wash their hands over the heifer whose neck was broken in the valley. And they shall testify, our hands did not shed this blood, nor did our eyes see it shed. Accept atonement, O Lord, for your people Israel, whom you have redeemed. And do not set the guilt of innocent blood in the midst of your people Israel, so that their blood guilt may be atoned for. So you shall purge the guilt of innocent blood from your midst." when you do what is right in the sight of the Lord. When you go out to war against your enemies, and the Lord your God gives them into your hand, and you take them captive, and you see among the captives a beautiful woman, and you desire to take her to be your wife, and you bring her home to your house, she shall shave her head and pare her nails. And she shall take off the clothes in which she was captured, and shall remain in your house and lament her father and her mother a full month. After that you may go into her and be her husband, and she shall be your wife." But if you no longer delight in her, you shall let her go where she wants. But you shall not sell her for money, nor shall you treat her as a slave, since you have humiliated her. If a man has two wives, the one loved and the other unloved, and both the loved and the unloved have borne him children, and if the firstborn son belongs to the unloved, then on the day when he assigns his possessions as an inheritance to his sons, he may not treat the son of the loved as the firstborn in preference to the son of the unloved, who is the firstborn. But he shall acknowledge the firstborn, the son of the unloved, by giving him a double portion of all that he has, for he is the firstroots of his strength. The right of the firstborn is his. That's our text for today. That's Deuteronomy 21, verses 1 to 17. So, Pastor Pay, take us into this first scenario. An unsolved murder, somebody's found slain near a city. What's going on in this section? Yeah, so an evil has been done. I think that's very clear to say. Uh, commandment has been broken, thou shalt not murder, right? It's been done, and so what should be the response of God's people to seek justice for this murder? Um, and But in this, in this scenario, they can't. There's no, uh, you know, man caught red-handed. There's no trail of footprints over to the next village. You know, there's, there's none of that. So what are they to do? Um, and, and so it, I think it's interesting. The first thing they do is they they get their measuring lines out and they find, okay, whose jurisdiction is it? This is something we do today. Whose jurisdiction is it? Who's going to deal with this? And uh, who's going to be the ones who are going to atone for or deal with this evil that has been done in our land? Hmm. Why? I mean, maybe just to take a step back from the scenario that's given, 
why why is there a concern for atonement in this case? Because as you said, there's no smoking gun, there's no footprints, there's no you know obvious trail leading. Here's the murderer, and so we know justice is going to be carried out against him. In this case, where they don't know, why is there still this concern for atonement in a case of an unsolved murder like this? Yeah, and I th- I think it has to do with if if you look at the last verse nine of of this section so you shall purge the guilt of innocent blood from your midst and so okay we didn't do it but it was done in our lands in among our people and god's people are to be a people of justice and where this this is not done and so it needs to be atoned for because it was done among them we we would call this corporate guilt. And we can push that too far. We can push that too far, right? Um, But I think there's something true there. When a tragedy strikes the small town, the whole whole place grieves. Um, When our kindred, when we learn history, right? Learn history or you're doomed to repeat it. And we we look at our past, hmm, that mm, that wasn't right, you know, and ah, we're not proud of that. And so I think we all know in some way this um, this concept of corporate guilt. Uh, Isaiah 6, Isaiah, when he's caught in the throne room of God, woe is me, I am a man of unclean lips, and I am of a people of unclean lips. Um, and then, of course, we see the angel brings tongs from the altar and a coal and purges his lips, makes them clean. So I, I think we see these concepts biblically. I think we know them ourselves when we see things happening in our lives. Um, we can push it too far, of course, but that, I think that's where this is coming from. This is God's people, and these types of things are wrong, and they should not be done in our lands. And when they are, we are going to seek justice for them. And when we can't seek justice for who carried it out, we are going to bear that burden of responsibility to make atonement for this wrong that was done and for this person who's what got a knife in their back or something. You know, what about them? God cares about them. And he cares that this was carried out in his people's land. And so atonement will be made. I, I think you you did a nice job of of threading that needle and not going too far with the corporate guilt. Because I, I don't think the point here is that the city is saying we are responsible mm-hmm. for this. Because I mean, and they even say when they wash their hands, we did not do this, and we don't know who did it. Yep. So they're not they're not confessing the sin themselves, but they are providing for this blood guiltiness that is is staining their land to to be atoned for to use the means that God provides he's he's telling them this is this is not good that this has happened near your town something needs to be done about it and so even though they they didn't do it right and that's that we don't want to carry that corporate guilt too far as you mm-hmm. said they still use the means that God has provided so that this blood guiltiness is atoned for and, and it's it's not an, an always an easy thing I think for us to to handle in our world today, but maybe something like you think about abortion in our land and it's, it's easy perhaps for someone to say, well, you know, I didn't vote for the people who put that in place. So I'm, I'm not guilty. Right. And, and again, we don't want to take it too far, but to recognize the 
the matter that we play together, this is where I live. I'm a part of this society, like it or not. And so I'm going to make use of the means that God has given to seek after justice, to use that word that has shown up in Deuteronomy over and over again. Well said. Yeah, we grieve that these things happen in our lands, and we want to do what we can to make it right. Yeah. Yeah. So let's let's talk then again about the specifics here. So again, this this dead body has been found obviously murdered. We don't know who. So the, the first thing, okay, you measure the distance to the surrounding cities to to figure out like who it's closest to, I guess. And and how does the how does the scene proceed? What's what's the procedure given? Yep. So yeah, you find the jurisdiction, and then uh, the the Levites are are tasked with this. You know, it's not CSI, it's not uh, cold case files. It's the 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 priests and the Levites. What we have to remember um, the civil law and God's law were one and the same in in this theocracy in the old covenant. And so, yeah, they were the ones who they dealt with mold in the house. They did all these things, right? And so they're the ones who go out to deal with this, this murder. Um, the, and I find it interesting. So they, they bring a heifer, this will be the sacrifice, but this is a rare instance of a bloodless sacrifice. Um, so often there's blood pouring down the altars not this case. They break the neck. Um, and, you know, maybe just a couple pastors over the lunch table. What what could the significance of that be? And I wonder, I wonder if it's, if it's a testimony to the fact that, okay, we didn't actually shed this man's blood. And so we won't shed this, this heifer's blood either. Nonetheless, here is a sacrifice for this evil that has been done in our land. And you'll notice that it's carried out on, um, so it's an undefiled heifer. It's a perfectly acceptable sacrifice. They, they specify that. And then they bring it out into a land that is undefiled. Um, mm. And so holy ground, acceptable for a sacrifice. Um, and so some of those themes of holiness are still being carried out. But the unique twist is this bloodless sacrifice for uh for this unsolved murder hmm. uh, talk let's talk a little bit more about this the bloodless sacrifice because on the on the one hand i mean I, I get i think i get what you're saying that there's no like they're not collecting the blood and throwing the blood on anything or some of those very graphic scenes that you see elsewhere in the books of moses but on the other hand there is still blood shed in the large sense of that term an animal is killed yeah so i, I don't I don't know, help help me a little bit more with that, I, I guess, because I, I think the fact that there is still there's blood shed in the sense that an animal is killed. This is a part of you know the atonement. Thinking through what say where the writer mm-hmm. Hebrews takes us that you know there's no forgiveness except with the shedding of blood. So that there's still that broad sense, but in the narrow sense, the I don't know. Th- think about that a little bit more. I want to flesh that out some. Yeah, and uh, I don't know if I have a perfect answer for it. Um, I, I'm merely, want, why wouldn't they slit its throat like mm-hmm. like every other sacrifice? The, the express command is to break its neck. I, I did look into the Hebrew a little bit. It's turning the head down. And I think two times in the Old Testament, it's breaking the neck. And one, it is uh, a, an actual cutting. And so um, perhaps there's room for 
the fact that maybe there is blood shed in the killing of this sacrifice. Um, but it, it did seem unique to me in my reading of it. And, and that's where my mind went immediately. So if, if the mm-hmm. sacrifice being carried out is unique, maybe that's because the circumstance that brought it about is unique. And, and so if, when I make that connection in my mind, what's unique about this, we, we didn't shed this man's blood. And so maybe that's why the sacrifice is a little bit different, but you're exactly right. At the end of the day, atonement can only be made with the lifeblood. A life is given, right? For this man who was murdered, for this injustice that was done. And so the sacrifice, of course, still stands. And when we point it forward to Christ, we know he shed blood. We know his blood was spilled out for us. Um, And so he's the ultimate answer for blood guilt. Uh, But I was just, my mind just was, why why was this a, a bloodless sacrifice? And so I was just pondering that a little bit. Well, and I appreciate that, and I guess the the reason that that I'm I'm thinking more along the lines of the there is still the bloodshed, which is has this atoning job, you know, like mm-hmm. cleanses, was was precisely the connection to Christ, yeah, and and in particular, and I, and maybe we're kind of jumping over this text or all over this text, but I think that's okay. The the verses that come to my mind are in First John chapter one, some of which we say regularly in in the divine service, if you use setting one or setting two out of Lutheran service book, you know, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But then that second verse, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins. And then this to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And, and someone once pointed out to me that this, this language of cleansing us from all unrighteousness uh, which in verse seven of this same chapter is attached to the blood of Jesus. Mm. That cleansing from all unrighteousness is not just the cleansing from unrighteousness that we commit. So the the sins you know that we commit, whether by the evil things we do or the good things we leave undone, that's unrighteousness that mm-hmm. needs cleansing. But sometimes, like in a case you know like Deuteronomy twenty one, there's unrighteousness that is committed against us or is committed around us, and so to like to see how in the Old Testament the Lord provides for cleansing of that unrighteousness, which again is, you know, there's this corporate guilt, not in the sense that they did it, but that they're suffering from its effects. Mm-hmm. The Lord provides for that cleansing. He does so all the much more for us through the blood of his son, Jesus Christ, which again, so like the uniqueness of the sacrifice. Yeah, I, I, I like that. But also the fact then that you have the blood of Christ that cleanses us from all the unrighteousness and it's it's easy for us to confess the unrighteousness that we commit. Sometimes it's harder for us to to grapple with that unrighteousness committed against us or around us. But in either case, you have the blood of of Christ, and and here you know it's this unique setting for us. The blood of Christ that's what cleanses us even from that unrighteousness committed around us. This is a I think this is a there's a lot of comfort here that maybe sometimes we don't think about as Christians because we're so used to I'm a poor miserable sinner. Yeah. Sorry, I'm going to let you talk now. I've talked enough. No, uh, you, I couldn't agree more. And so when, I, when I've counseled victims of abuse, they have great um, secondary guilt and shame for a thing they never even did, for something that was done to them. And the wonderful gospel message that we can proclaim in those situations is that the blood of Christ 
it covers our sins, yes, but it also covers our shame. And so these things that have been done to us and around us, the sacrifice of Jesus, that robe of righteousness that he gives us covers all of that. And I think that's a very comforting message. And I think you're exactly right. We see it here. These people and injustice has been done in their land. It's shameful. It's wrong. And now God is providing a way for them to cover it. And, you know, I could speculate all all day long about the mode of the sacrifice, it being bloodless and, and whatnot. But at the end of the day, we know a sacrifice was made. A life was given for atonement. And how does that not point straight forward to the life given on the cross for the atonement of the world? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is, you know, there's, there's tons of new Testament texts that we could, mm-hmm. we could connect to this, you know, the, I mean, just the, the testimony of John the Baptist, the the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Or, I mean, he, he sheds his blood for that sake. And, yeah. and John, the apostle picks that up in his, his epistle, tons of places, the writer of Hebrews. Whole book of Hebrews. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. That's like, that's his whole book right there. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> so, so a really, really important point. Now we, we talked about the sacrifice and connected that to Christ. What about this matter of, of washing hands? That's also included here. Yes. And how can we not go to Pontius Pilate here? Right. Um, and there he is and he's washing his hands in a, what in a in, in a way saying, "Oh, I am innocent of this man's life," but is he? He he knows what's going to happen to to Jesus. He has the power to stop it, and he thinks that hand washing is going to take the blood guilt off his hands. I don't think so. Now here in Deuteronomy twenty one, the situation is different. They didn't see anything. They didn't hear anything. They do not have the power to bring justice to this case. And so here we see in contrast to Pontius Pilate, I think we do see a proper use of hand washing. Lord, if if we had any inkling, we'd pursue it, but we simply don't. And so we've offered this sacrifice for this evil done in our lands and have mercy on us. Don't hold this blood guilt against us. I think that's the the purpose of the hand washing. Yeah, and I think you know when you contrast what happens with Pontius Pilate and what's happening here, you do see the seriousness of what God gives them to do yeah. in washing their hands. You know, with with Pilate, as you pointed out, like it comes off as a pretty empty gesture, mm-hmm. and everyone kind of knows, yeah, that didn't really work. Good try, yeah, <laughs> but it didn't really work. With with the elders doing it here, I think it is, a, it is a public testimony. They're saying, yeah, we really didn't have anything to do with this. And kind of on the, you know, maybe an unspoken part of it, but, and if we did, we are guilty even, I mean, like this is a True. public testimony on their part of just how serious they take this matter that they're willing to publicly, I mean, it doesn't use the word oath. It talks about testify, publicly swear that they really didn't do it. And the hand washing is a, a public sign of that. Yeah, I agree. And that's where my mind went as you started talking is, you know, when, if the Christian is making an oath, okay, tell the truth then, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, and so, you know, we, of course, reading Deuteronomy 21, when these cases go up, we would, of course, I think, give them the benefit of the doubt that, hey, we just don't know. So, Lord, here's a sacrifice. 
have mercy on us. We wash our hands. Mm, yeah, yeah. Well, and then, you know, the also also connecting it to the account with Pontius Pilate, when he washes his hands, the people respond with those very ironic mm. words, you know, his blood be on us and our children. They're willing to accept the guilt mm-hmm. is what they're saying. But what they're praying is really what Jesus came to do yep. is to let his, in and that's striking too. You know, It talks about purging the guilt of innocent blood here. It is the innocent blood upon us that actually cleanses us from guilt. I, I don't know. There's a lot of layers to connect there, yep. but there's something there, I think. Oh yeah. Those, those cryptic lines are, yeah, it's so true. We do. I want the blood of Christ to be upon me and upon my children, but not as blood guilt as a cleansing sacrifice for my sin and shame. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Right. And so it is by that innocent blood of Jesus that our guilt is atoned for. And again, this, the injustice, the unrighteousness done in our land, even that is covered by this blood of Christ. And so we see a a prefiguring of that in this matter of, of an unsolved murder in Deuteronomy 20. Anyone, anything more in those, those verses that we've missed there, Pastor Pei? I think we got the land, the heifer, we got the hand washing, we got the corporate guilt. Those, I think those are the big topics there. And of course, let's not forget how it points forward to Jesus. And we've mentioned that too. Uh, he is the ultimate answer for blood guilt. Very good. Then I think that's a good place to go ahead and take our break. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO. We're looking at Deuteronomy 21 this morning with Pastor Darren Pay. We will be right back. Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. What do you think of when you hear the word college? Expensive? Liberal? Woke? Imagine a college that is affordable. A college that is unapologetically conservative and Lutheran. A college that won't take a dime of federal funding. A college that teaches the best of our Western heritage. A college where students grow in the Christian faith instead of leaving it behind. This is Luther Classical College. A college by Lutherans and for Lutherans. Visit our website, lutherclassical.org. Subscribe, become a patron, and join the thousands who are making Luther Classical College a reality. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Thursday, September 8th. We're studying Deuteronomy chapter 21, verses 1 to 17 with Pastor Garen Pei. He serves at Hope Lutheran Church in Idaho Falls, Idaho. Pastor Pei, prior to the break, we looked at the matter of atonement for unsolved murders in the first nine verses of the chapter, and we talked about how this connects to Christ. His innocent blood covers all unrighteousness, both the unrighteousness that we commit and the unrighteousness committed around us and against us. And when we move into verse 10, Moses changes topics. Now, the section that ESV, the ESV calls it marrying female captives. So there's there's a number of touchy subjects for our world mm-hmm. today that we get to start dealing with. Uh, where, where do you want to start? I'll, I'll let you choose. Yeah, I think we start right there. Our modern sensibilities might raise an eyebrow at this section 
um, you just get to choose that you're going to marry this this lady and she doesn't have a choice in the matter. I think what can maybe help is understanding the context of the day. And I don't think I have to spell out what happens during the spoils of war in other nations when there's a conquering army coming in, yeah. uh, let alone the plunder of riches. But what? how did they treat women, right? I think we all can imagine the horrors uh, that happened. And so in this law, even if our modern sensibilities raise an eyebrow at it, keep in mind that the purpose of this law is God saying that my people will not be like those other nations and how they treat people. Uh, and I think that's going to be the running theme throughout this section is this lady is not property. She is a wife and a part of the family. And I think that is a big distinction. There are some other nuances Um Women didn't often own land back then. Uh, in the book of Numbers, there is some cases where women could own land, but these would be Gentile women. And so to, to think that they would just, you know, go on their merry way in Israel without a husband, I think that might be difficult. Um, and so when this lady, her father and brothers are dead in war or, or captive or something, uh, to just go on her merry way might actually be pretty hard. And so I'm not saying that, that it's merciful to just, oh, now you're marrying me. Um, but I think some of that context might inform why that practice was carried out. And again, the bottom line is going to be throughout this section that my people will not be like the other nations. You don't just get to have your lustful tryst with whoever you want after the lust of battle, right? And so that's, I think, the biggest distinction. I, I do think keeping that context in mind is very helpful, that the Lord very much limits here what would have happened in any other nation. He yeah. says that will not happen in among my people. Yeah. And, and you, you see that throughout the book of Deuteronomy in, in a, several places where the Lord either limits his people in, in contrast to what the nations around them would do, or he limits where their sinful natures would take them in terms of, I mean, we saw that in, in previous chapters, like chapter 19, where he limits where the sinful desire for vengeance would normally take a person. He puts a limit on that. Yeah. So once again, something similar happening here, he puts a limit on where the sinful natures of his people would take them, particularly when they would look at the example of the people around them. And again, still a difficult topic, but putting it in that context is is very helpful. And I, so, yeah, and I appreciate what you said. Sorry, I cut you off, but I appreciate what you said there about these are sinners, right? We're sinners. These okay. are sinners. And so these laws are not necessarily a reflection of... Um, you know, the ideal, many of them are a reflection of, as you put it so perfectly, a, a boundary, a harness on what God knows these sinful people might want to do. And he's saying, no, 
no, you can't just indulge in whatever way you wish. So I like how you put that. Well, and and just thinking about the way you said it, it reminds me of the way Jesus even approaches mm-hmm. this in the Gospels. You know, coming up, we're we're coming up to Deuteronomy twenty four here in in a short amount of time, and that's where the Pharisees will come to Jesus late, you know, in the Gospels and say, "Hey, Moses." Moses said we could get a divorce and Jesus approaches, well, Moses did that because of the hardness of heart. And and that's probably a good way to think about texts like this too, that there's a hardness of heart that the Lord knows about. And so Moses through speaks the word of the Lord that tries to limit that hardness of heart from doing everything that it would and working all kinds of evil. Uh, yeah, so yeah, I mean, I think, I think Jesus shows us that kind of approach in the gospels. And I think that is perfectly applicable to this text that we're in today, because what's the very last verse? I I know we aren't taking these in order, sorry. Uh, We aren't going verse by verse. But again, look at the bottom of this. If this guy just decides, but verse 14, but if you no longer delight in her, you shall let her go where she wants. And so, okay, you have this hardness of heart. So, So you took this lady and we can talk about um, the process for that here, those middle verses in a second. But you took this lady and then you changed your mind. Is that really kind to her? Now, not only does she have her father and brothers because her land got conquered, but now you've gone into her. We know what that means. And that's going to make it harder for her to marry someone else. And you've just, you're done right? Uh, and and so God says, okay, if that's the hardness of your heart is taking you there, here's the limit. You do not get to sell her. She is not your property. She is your wife that apparently you don't want anymore, but she is a person. And so now she, she gets to decide where her next steps will go. Okay. And so I think this reinforces again, your point, it is the hardness of hearts that we're dealing with, as Jesus talks about as well. And number two, that these captive women are not property, they are people. Mm. Yeah. Well, and I think, too, it's it's probably worth pointing out that like we, we are generally talking about these verse by verse, but I, I don't think Moses' intention was for, for the people to read it verse by verse and then like act it out verse by verse. And then by the time they get to 14, like, oh, I don't like this person. No, <laughs> the idea was to read the whole thing yeah. and consider what would happen at the end if all these things happen mm-hmm. so that you you think about it ahead of time. And again, to, again, difficult situation, but also to, when you're dealing with this female captive, to treat her as a, a fellow human being, not as property to be sold. And so to, to look at the whole thing together, I think is precisely what Moses would have had the Israelites do when they approach the situation. So they don't get to the end of the the verses and say, oops, I didn't really end up, didn't want to end up here. That That's kind of the point, yeah. not to end up there, <laughs> I, I think. So yeah, I agree. So yeah. Let's- you read this law and you as an Israelite who's going off to war, you know you know the drill. You know that if if you find someone you want to marry, they are your wife. And so oh, yeah. if you want to just cast them off or treat them like property, no, that's not how it works. And and so if in your hardness of heart it gets to that, sorry, you yeah. do not get the last word on where she goes. She does. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, and it's just, and I'm going to let you talk about the process here in a second. But in just, to, I would like to point out that in reading Professor Harstad's commentary in the Concordia Commentary series, he he even suggests that that one of the ways to when you look at the Hebrew grammar here is that that perhaps in verse fourteen is is intended so that you actually haven't taken her as your your wife by that verse. That mm-hmm. that verse fourteen is intended to say. Don't don't do verse thirteen if you don't take delight in her. Yeah. So that there there may be it's kind of it depends on the translation. The ESV I think reads like you were taking it, but when you when you translate it, if you, you look at the Hebrew grammar, it's possible that that perhaps it's not. It's meant to be an either or that you don't end up taking her as your wife. You put her, you know, you go through this process, but then at the end, if you decide no, I really don't want her to take her as my wife, then you don't treat her as your wife, and you let her go. Yeah. So anyways, with that in mind, take us into the, the process that is described here. Yeah. So, okay. So there's this, be- this lady you, you want to be your wife. Um, and so you, you bring her into your home and, and then it's all this, she shaves her head. She trims her nails all the way back down. She gets new clothing. And, you know, in my mind, I read that and I'm like, okay, fresh start. Okay, all all is new, but also let's keep in mind that the shaving of the head is clearly a sign of of mourning, of distress. Um, and then there's the time allotment of a month, right? And so <laughs> you can only imagine the trauma that some of these that these women have gone through. This is a pretty big life change, and I, I think that's that's being flippant, right? Um, <laughs> And, and so we see here, there's a period of time for them to, as humans, to grieve, to grieve their, their city, their people who lost this battle. There's a time for them, I think, to, and notice they're in the home, they're in your home. And so now they have a time to see that, okay, is this person an abusive monster? What, what nation conquered me? How, what do they look like? And so there's, there's time for that to take place. Now, of course, everybody grieves differently and all that stuff, you know, is a month, you know, all that. No, we get that. But we do see that God is, no, no, no. You don't just bring them in and have your wet. No, you give them time to mourn, to grieve because again, they're people. And I really think that that, and, and this is, they're, they're become a part of the family, they're a part of the home, and they're, they get your clothes, and they're, they're starting anew as a person of the home, and dare I say, we see this in the Old Testament, as a part of God's people, as a part of Israel, right? They're a part of the family now. And uh, so there's a new start there. Yeah, I, I think the the matter of new clothes really does speak to that, and we probably want to not take this too far. But but you know, not wearing the former clothes of, of where they live now, they're wearing you know Israelite clothes. Mm-hmm. This is a a new start. You are a part of this family. If if he is going to take her as his wife, then she will be his wife. Mm-hmm. 
period, not yep. not something less than that. And the you know just the way that you you see this throughout the scriptures, where you know old clothes and then new clothes. This is a, a new way of life being received into the family. Certainly, Paul uses that language for baptism. And again, I I don't want to I want to be careful the, but I think there's that's the that's what's being communicated here mm-hmm. by the the matter of clothing is yeah she's she's actually your wife now again not your property not your slave she's your wife and perhaps that's why and and i think maybe there's still more to say on this section but perhaps that's why this leads into the next section about rights of firstborn in that this lady is your wife she's not second rate and so if your mm-hmm. firstborn child is from a gentile but she is your wife that is your firstborn child, right? And so um, perhaps there's some connection there. Yeah, I, th- I think so. I, I don't think it's in. It's. I'm not entirely sure how closely want to connect this section to the next. Yeah, but because I don't it's think about it's, polygamy. Yeah, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so I don't think it's completely there, but it's not entirely. I mean, there there seems to be something there from the from the move from 14 to 15. Before we leave this section behind, though, what what else do we need to to pick up from these verses 10 to 14. I, I think the biggest point, the biggest takeaway for me is, um, is, is that the Israel will not be like the other nations. I mean, with, with modern TV shows and streaming, you know, there are plenty of warfare shows out there and I think they're all competing to see who can be the most heinous at times. But perhaps we can see mm, maybe war isn't so fun all the time. Mm. And to be a losing army, I, I mean, think of Israel when they're conquered by the Babylon. They put fish hooks in their mouths and led them off to Babylon. I mean, this is horrendous stuff. Jesus says, go run in the caves. Um, and, and so God here is saying, we will not be like the other nations. I think that's the biggest takeaway. Number two is you see the value of the personhood of this captive Gentile woman. Um, I think that's a big takeaway. You begin to see God's heart for justice and for people there. And then number three, we actually haven't talked a ton about Jesus here. I think that the connection in the last section with sacrifice was so obvious and with the washing of hands. Where's Jesus in this text? And I and I think I go to kind of Christus Victor. Um, he's the conquering, he's the conquering hero, and we, his people, who are brought into his family, is he going to do verse fourteen and just change his mind? No, he is the one who cares for his bride, the church, and will present her spotless, stainless, sinless. Um, and so I think there's some pretty neat themes there about Jesus being the victor and being and caring for his bride, the church. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I, I like that. I like that. The connection Christ and his bride, the church, and then the the gracious victor, the the yeah. loving victor, not the the tyrant yep. who comes to to lord it over, but the the gracious Lord who comes to to I mean, yeah, just be gracious. The way the way Luther puts it in the explanation to the second article of the creed, you know, he is my Lord who has redeemed me. Mm-hmm. That, that's how Christ is is the the conqueror. Yeah. He redeems us his people. Yeah. And yeah. I think of the parable of the strong man, he binds up yeah. the the owner of the house and he plunders us. He takes us from from the the evil one. 
and he we and he cares for us, brings us into his home. And so this is how this is our strong savior who will never leave or forsake or abuse his people. So I think there's a lot of comfort there. As the text moves into verse 15, then we get another fun topic to mm. talk about polygamy. If a man has two wives, say what? What's going on here? Uh yeah, so <laughs> I'm in Idaho Falls, uh not far from Utah. And so mm. this is a topic of uh some importance around these parts with the heavy LDS community here. Um, and so often our, our, what's the deal? It's in the old Testament, right? So, um, I think it, it's clearly permitted and we choose that word carefully permitted. I've, it's not condoned. I've never seen a verse that right. condones it. And furthermore, uh, right. So we go to Genesis, you see father, or, uh, a man will leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, two will become one flesh. Those are the same words that Jesus echoes when they ask him about marriage. So we see God's design for marriage there. Mm-hmm. And so what of these aberrations of it? I think some of the context we previously discussed um, with marrying female captives, I think some of that context plays in here. So if a woman couldn't feed herself or own land, what did she do? She could go be a servant somewhere. She could glean in the fields. We see that with Ruth. But that that's, mm, I don't know if that's the best living situation for long term. Um, so she could go to someone who could feed her. And now if you are a young woman of marrying age, and we know the sinful hearts and lustful hearts of people, uh, what might happen if you're just a young servant girl in someone's house? Mm. So they would marry him. Okay. Uh, now, a man, if they fell on hard times, uh, that kind of lustful temptation isn't there being in someone else's household. So then you have that indentured servitude. And of course, that's, we raise our modern eyebrows at that. We, of course, know it was much different in the ancient world than the chattel slavery of the South. Um, but back on this topic, then, um, we, we can understand some of that context for why it happened. And then, but my second and, and larger point when I talk about this is okay, so this aberration from God's design is permitted. When does it work out well? <laughs> you, you <laughs> think of, yeah, you think of Abraham, Sarah, Hagar, Ishmael. You know, God took care of them, but they were sent back into the wilderness. You think of Solomon, what happened with him and his wives after a warning. Think of David being lustful. I can have whatever woman I I want. Mm, See how that turned out. Um, Hannah, you know, can't have kids. Other wife, Penina, I believe, could have kids. They're, they're, you know, harping at each other. And and, And to bring it back to our text today, what is the purpose of this very law? It's because these people were playing favorites with their wives and it was hurting people and hurting their families. And so God says, here's a law. Right. Again, you know, thinking about what we were talking about with the hardness of heart, we, we see that yeah. again. You know, and, and one of the things that I, I suppose is, is maybe worth at least a little bit of a mention is that, uh, you know, you pointed out with the female captives previously that there's even an indication perhaps that these wives then become 
Israelites by faith. Mm, yeah. You think about those other foreigners who could have become Israelites by faith, join the Israelite community. If they've already got two wives, how do they how do they take care of both of them? I mean, that's that's a real life what we might call casuistry as pastors, where you, you try to figure out. And I think that's maybe part of what's going on here. You know, someone is they've already got the two wives. What what then? How do we how do we deal with this in the way that takes care of people is in, in the best way possible? Again, that hardness of heart matter. It, it kind of strikes me here. This is almost a a lesson from history. You, you think about a man who had wives and favorites among his children. That you go back to Israel himself, Jacob yeah. and and his wives and Joseph, and there were problems when he played favorites with Joseph. It seemed so. I mean, it, it seems like Moses is is helping the people learn from their own history here. Yeah. And again, God is, is caring for his people. Go ahead. Oh, no, I was just, you know, nodding my head along with you. This is clearly a hardness of heart law. It's okay. You've, you've gone away from God's design for marriage and perhaps there were reasons for it. Fair enough. Um, but now you don't just get to overlook the other laws Mm-hmm. because you have favorites now that you've gone away from God's design for marriage. And so I I like, I mean, and talk about, you know, uh, Pastor Wolf Muir, who I listen to a lot, he always says, you, you want to try to smell the text. You know, put yourself in one of these households. You know, you don't know who the husband's calling that night. And there's jealousy. Um, there's angst. How many tears are shed because of all these power struggles and a longing for intimacy that might not be fulfilled um, and just vulnerability. And that's hard. That's a hard thing. Um, and, and so we, of course, would go, okay, so this is perhaps why God designed it as one man, one woman. Um, but now, okay, you're in that household. And now all of a sudden, the favorite wife's in the husband's ear and saying, what about my son? What about my son? And so, and so the hum- husband then is tempted to, okay, fulfill the wishes of, of that wife and give the more of the inheritance. And God here is saying, uh-uh, you, you, you don't get to just overlook the rights of the firstborn because you're playing favorites in your hardness of heart or in this um, situation you've put yourself in. You don't just get to overlook another person's rights. And so I, I suppose maybe in the last section, we talked about how the wife was a person and was to be treated as such. And really, I suppose in this one, maybe it's not so much about the hardness of heart and playing the favorites with the wives. It's actually, you must respect the personhood of your firstborn son, regardless of who their mother is. Mm, yeah, yeah. Well, I think you see, you know, the person in authority, which would be the the husband, the father in this case, the great temptation is to abuse that authority to do whatever he wants with it and whatever, you know, whatever his favoritism tells him to do. And we've seen the concern for justice throughout the book of Deuteronomy. We mentioned it earlier. And here again, you know, that the Lord wants justice. He wants his word upheld. And in that word, there is no place for the favoritism of the husband to abuse his authority to, to do whatever he wants, but rather to make use of the authority that God has given to actually care for the people 
whom God has given him to care for and to do so according to his word. I and, like that. You know, the way that you, the way you put us into the household and, and to think about the angst that would be there, boy, that, that is a very vulnerable position. And so how, how necessary it really is for the, the husband, the father to do according to God's word so that again, the, the justice of the Lord is actually carried out. And I appreciate how you put that make use of the authority given him, because I think if we, again, put ourselves in that house again, uh, who is trying to influence that husband to call the shots, right? It's going to be the, the mother of this, I guess, second born son or third or whatever and saying, Hey, 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 no, you need to give it to him. You need to give it to him. And so this law is saying, no, you husband have a job and your job is to make sure that the, the word of the Lord is carried out in your house. And the word of the Lord says the firstborn gets the double portion. And so, um, you're exactly right. Don't give into the pressure, stand fast, say, no, this is what is right. The firstborn gets the inheritance. And if I can maybe, um, again, I was reading the Luther commentary on this and, uh, this first, this firstborn getting the inheritance, he, he, he talks a little bit about how the reason the firstborn gets the double, double portion is because, you know, then it's up to the Lord who gets it right? Because mm. the Lord is in charge of, you know, yeah. the quiver, the arrows in our quiver, right? And and to usurp that, to say, you know what? I know that was my firstborn son, and that's the Lord's will. Um, I just don't want to do that, and I can give it to someone else. Mm. And so, not only are you not treating that firstborn son as a person, not only are you um, playing off perhaps a power imbalance in your in your household with your wives, but you're also usurping God's created order of having that your firstborn son receive the inheritance. We have about a minute left here, Pastor. Help us in this last section to see Christ. How, yeah. how does this last portion point us to Jesus? Uh, well, he's the only begotten. He's the firstborn. And, um, who who has an eternal inheritance, uh, a kingdom beyond anything we could imagine. And yet in his mercy, he goes to a cross that we might be brought into the family and receive a portion of that inheritance as well. And so I think that's the connection here in uh, Jesus, his eternal inheritance and him being the firstborn and how gracious he is um, because it's not, a, it's not, um, it's not, it's not child abuse. It's not the father saying, I don't want, I don't want to give it to the only begotten son. I want to give it to someone else. It's the son going along with the father saying, yes, let's bring all God's children into this eternal inheritance. And so he's sharing it as he wills with his people, which is a wonderful comfort. Pastor Garen Pay serves at Hope Lutheran Church in Idaho Falls, Idaho, helping us today with Deuteronomy 21, verses 1 to 17. Pastor Pay, thanks for being our guest today. Thanks for having me. I am your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions about Deuteronomy, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. We always love to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.